Southern Queries. I'm India Bastien. And I'm Aubrey Calvin. Together we explore being a part of the LGBTQ community in the South. A quick note on terminology. On this show, we let guests identify in the best way they're comfortable with. Some of the terms or topics might be different, new, or uncomfortable to you. That discomfort is part of what we're exploring together. We encourage you to listen with an open heart and continue these discussions with your larger community. We encourage any meaningful and politeful feedback. Thanks, and welcome to Southern Queries. For today's show, Aubrey and I have invited Stacy Stevenson onto the show. I discovered Stacy Stevenson um, because I was looking for my community and stumbled upon Let's Talk Dallas, which is an LGBTQ women's empowerment conference. And um, her and her wife are well known here in the DFW area. And I can't wait for you all to get to know about them as a family and all of their projects that they're doing. So welcome to the show. Please note that this episode contains talk about suicide and self-harm that some people may find disturbing or triggering. You can skip this part of the episode and I have left where you can skip in the show notes. Stacy Stevenson is a senior leader at a major financial firm and co-founder of Les Talk, a Dallas LGBTQ plus women's empowerment conference and the Live Life on Your Own Terms, a lifestyle brand co-owned by her wife. Uh, Stacy's passions include technology, writing, and uplifting her community. When she's not spending time at her day job helping modernize contact center technology, you can find her serving on the board of several nonprofits, writing, or helping underprivileged youth stay motivated by changing her story and experiences. Recently, Stacy and her wife, Cherilyn, started The Changest, a consulting firm aimed at major corporations. Stacy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're so glad to have you on here. Yes, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Stacey, we like to ask our guests right off the bat, um, can you tell us how you identify and why is that identity important to you and what pronouns do you use? So I use the pronoun, pronouns um, she, her, am I forgetting the other one? She, her. Her. Hers, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that again. So yeah, use the pronouns uh, she, her, hers. Um, and I identify as lesbian. That's what you're you're asking. Um, and you know, it took me some time to even become comfortable with that word. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I can actually use it now is really important to me. I went through this phase of my coming out or trying to come out or being pulled out of the closet in, in, in high school of saying that I was bisexual because I felt that that was more acceptable. But as I started to come into my own and feel more comfortable in my skin um you know i'm like no i'm I'm, i am a lesbian and so it's important to me because it was such a i was when i grew up that was such a was such a bad word it was almost like a bad word it was like hard to say and hard to sort of even identify as because of all of the negativity surrounding that particular word especially in my community so that's why it's important to me because it's me living my full self my full truth it's nice to be able to say actually yeah yeah, I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Some people really don't want labels these days, and some people are embracing labels because of 
how hard it has been to own it and the and the journey to accept it yourself and be accepted by other people. So uh, exactly. we do what, think it's important that you be able to label yourself, whether yeah. you want to label or not. Yeah. And just say that really, loud. Right? <laughs> like <laughs> I tell people, I am a Black, queer, trans woman, and it took me 30 plus years to get to that. So I'm happy. <laughs> yes. And say it and say it loud. You know, Absolutely. it took me so long to get there. And you actually wrote previously about your trauma associated with how you came out and your parents. And you've got this great piece on Black, um, that says Black Girls Cut too. Um, how did your parents really, how did you come out or how did they know when you, that you were first a lesbian? Yeah, so I think that they had an inkling and they weren't, you know, admitting it, right? Mm -hmm. And what happened for me is I finally came to terms with how I was feeling um, with a friend in high school. I think I was 16 or 17 years old. And I was struggling. I was really struggling, even though I had crushes. I can remember having crushes on girls from kindergarten. I can remember the girl um, who I had a crush on in first grade. So it's always been who I, who I was, part of me. Uh, but in high school, um, I started liking um, this girl. We were good friends. Um, I was struggling with it, decided to tell her, and she felt the same. And that was my first girlfriend. Um, but what happened after that is the, uh, the school found out. And the way the school found out is that I wrote a letter to her and I dropped the letter accidentally because I didn't oh. carry per I didn't carry purses back then. Oh, that's so a, I dropped that's a the note letter. passing fail. The note passing fail. Oh. It was the, it was a good note too. It was like something like you're coming in my house um, today. Can't wait to see you. And I'm an older person, older probably than uh, you two, I'm sure. And Jabot jeans were really big back then. So yes. I, was, yes. I said something like, could you wear those those black Jabot jeans? Something, and I love you, right? Dropped the letter, didn't know it. Out. It got passed to our parents, our parents found out. So that's how they ultimately found out is through what happened at the school because it was just, it was an uproar. People didn't want to get dressed with uh, my girlfriend in the girls' locker room anymore. And the teachers and the coaches refused to, to speak to me about it. Her parents moved her out of the school and so put her in another school. And, and this was all in South Texas, right? In, in Corpus Christi, Texas. Exactly. So you didn't come out. You were outed. I was in a very outed. traumatic like way. Traumatic oh. way. It pulled out. And then the word passed on to my sister's middle school because siblings in the high school um, or the people in the middle school had siblings in the high school. So mm -hmm. it got passed on to her. So she comes home crying, you know, a couple days later. It was just a mess. My mother was mad at me. So that's ultimately how they found out. I knew that they had an idea of it, but that was just the, okay, this is really it. And that's how I had to face it with them. So follow-up question. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it does seem to be, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but it does sure. seem common narrative that many Black families aren't accepting of their LGBTQ kids. Why do you think that's the case? And where are you now with your parents? I think the case, I think that belief is steep in religion. Mm. And mm. if you go back way, way back to even when Black folks were slaves, religion was the only thing that we had, right? I've talked about it, about this before in another um, forum, but when you're getting beat and starved and, and it's all the atrocities that happen to slaves and then you're given religion that's the only source of hope that you have to tend to hold on to it so then think about the connection with religion and um and homosexuality 
And I think that we've really bought into that. We've really bought into that it's a sin, that it's something that you can't do. And we won't let go of that religious piece. I think that's the connection with, uh, with Black families who tend to be more religious, I think, than, than their counterparts. Mm. So, you know, my relationship with my family is great now. You know, one of the things that happened after, the, uh, after I was pulled out of the closet is that my parents were really pissed off, obviously, not accepting. And I was visiting with my girlfriend maybe two to three weeks later. We lived in an apartment complex at the time and I was sitting on the stairs with her. My mom had made us go outside because she didn't even want to see us together. And I, I, I see my dad coming up. My dad lived 30 minutes away in a, in a small town where I'm originally from named Robstown, Texas. He's walking up and I see him and I'm like, dad, hey, you haven't seen you, you know, a couple weeks or so. And he grabs me, literally grabs me and he drags me upstairs and I have the worst beating. And I don't mean spanking, the worst beating. No, beating. Yeah. Beating, beating. I had bruises on my neck, all of that, right? Wow. Uh, neighbors heard, they called the cops, asked if I wanted to uh, press charges. I said no. But that was, that happened shortly after that. They just, it was almost like beating, trying to beat the gay out of me, right? Ugh. You fast forward to now, my dad and I spoke at P-Flag in February. What? He is, what? That is amazing. He is the, he's the black man who actually you would have never thought would have supported, right? He had a gay brother who he didn't support. We spoke at P-Flag together on, uh, in February. He was back in January, February. He, he drove from Austin just for that. And um, in our, our first Let's Talk conference, he was on the family panel. And he talked about how crappy of a dad he was. He talked about his own fears and his own failings. And there was not a dry eye in the house. And after the conference, I kid you not, every African-American girl was in line to talk with him because he reminded them of their dad. And they were saying, how do I get my dad to come to, to, come to this place? So he's a huge advocate. If anyone says anything about anyone who is LGBTQ plus, he's going to say something to them. So That's can you believe sweet. that, That's right? He's, he's, my, he's my best friend. So like yeah. We went through all that and he's my biggest supporter. Wow. What? Yeah. I, I feel oh. like this story needs to be heard more because I feel like we hear so much about unaccepting parents, but we don't hear enough about parents being open to new information and new circumstances and seeing the change. Yeah. Uh, I feel like the media even plays off of it and, you know, TV shows and movies, they just love highlighting homophobic parents, but they don't like highlight. Especially black homophobic parents. Exactly. Especially, yeah. well, even just homophobic parents of color, really. Exactly. Even, exactly. Yeah. Whether they be, you know, Asian, Latino, exactly. And yeah. I would, and I told him, and actually we were going to do this before the pandemic hit, he was going to come to Schwab and we were going to talk about our story. So we had already talked, um, you know, spoke at, at P-Flag and I wanted to have a panel. And I think there should be a panel discussion of black men. If we could find them enough to talk about it because the uh, black mothers tend to be a little bit more accepting yeah. than, uh, than their, um, than their husbands. Right. Uh, but it if took I think my about, dad a while to, co- to come around, yeah. but now he texts me 
of yes. stories and he texts me article ideas and he texts me funny that. things like did you hear about this like yes dad i heard about that and i love just that wants so then your something. dad can be on the panel we have to do the panel <laughs> right we I'll have to, to bring him the down. panel i'll have to bring him down from oklahoma but he <laughs> that's fine that's fine he's not too far um but to think about know. um he's a you know this doting grandpa and he's he's a great father-in-law to my to my wife he calls uh-huh. her sometimes and not me and to think about where we came from it's possible absolutely possible Let's talk about Les Talk. Mm-hmm. It's an organization that ha- was founded by you and your wife and another Black lesbian couple, right? Correct. How did you two meet and what led you to start it? And full disclosure, uh, I met Tracy. We, we, work, we you both met Tracy? At, we both work at TCC. But oh, I'm awesome. This, so I've met her at a couple of different leaderships and uh, trainings and things like that. So okay. I know casual work acquaintance, but how did yeah. you two meet? So it's it's really funny. So um, my wife is constantly trying to get me to make friends. And <laughs> oh, mine too. It's exhausting. <laughs> I'm the wife in this scenario. I'm always trying to make friends. It's exhausting. <laughs> and I'm not an introvert. I'm just very selective and I'm very much focused on my career. And so this is when we lived in Colorado. So um, when I worked for North Bay, I moved us to, to Denver. And so we were living in Colorado. And uh, Ta- Judge Tanya Parker, who's married to um, Tracy, um, she had made the news. And I think she'd made the news about she was not going to marry um, uh, uh, couples anymore, I think, until uh, same-sex couples have the right or something along those lines. And so we still followed the Dallas news. And so Sherilyn found that on Facebook. And so she starts profiling and, and kind of stalking Tanya. And she's like, this girl would be such a great best friend for you. And I was like, no, she would not. I don't no. even know who she is. No. <laughs> she's in Dallas. What are you talking about? So Sherilyn friended Tanya. And Tanya, which she never does this, especially with her position as a judge, she accepts the friend um, request. Hmm. They never talk, ever. Uh, fast forward to us moving back to Dallas in 2012. And they were... Tracy, who also is a, uh, she's a, um, a PE teacher as well. And, and so she was going to be doing a, a Zumba class at a place in Dallas. And Tanya, out of the blue, just reached out to Sherilyn and said, hey, I know about your weight loss journey. Would you and your wife want to come to this Zumba class on a Saturday? And I normally would say no. <laughs> I like my Saturdays. I don't know them. But I said yes. And we went to the Zumba class, had a great time. We exchanged information and the rest is history. Like we became fast friends and um, had a lot of similarities. And then we decided to create this, this conference together. And Cheryl and I had always talked about creating a couples retreat or couples conference or something like that for, um, for you know, LGBTQ couples because there's not something out there like that. And we started talking with Tanya and Tracy about it and we all were on the same page. We went to um, Florida for vacation. And in that vacation, we all said, let's do it. And, you know, that's how Let's Talk was born. And uh, we didn't know where to start, <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but we did it. And our main, you know, goal was that there are so many conferences for straight couples. There are so many conferences that are geared 
first treat people, for heterosexual people. Um, what about us? We're married couples. We um, we share some of our challenges with each other, but I'm sure there are other people who could also use that sort of help. How do we get that out to people? How do we help people that way? And that's how Let's Talk was, was born, and that was uh, our focus. And um, Let's Talk, I mean, it's a conference for couples about business, family. I mean, what is it? It's a couple, it's, it's a, no, it's actually not a couples conference, even though we focus on love. So um, our sort of our, our focus areas are love, link, and learn. And love is the love piece. Link is about networking and okay. learning is about okay. education. And, you know, it's about, it's for LGBTQ women. It's, it's a women's empowerment conference. Whatever you, if you identify as a woman, even if you don't, this conference is for you. So even if you're single, for example, with our uh, conference that we had last year, we had a, um, a particular breakout session for single people. We don't want to leave out single people. Not everyone's married. Not everybody wants to be coupled, right? So not everybody wants to be married. Not everybody wants to be married, exactly. So it's for couples. It's for single people. Uh, it's for you know, young people. I mean, our, I think our, our age um, in terms of our demographics span from, say, 25, 26 to, say, 40-something. So we had a wide span of, of, of people in terms of age ranges that we had there. But yeah, and we talk about health. We talk about being a couple. We talk about resilience. Uh, we talk about, you know, how we stay connected. And we talk about how the hell do we navigate this crazy world that we're in right now. <laughs> Pre-pandemic and pre-before a lot of this other stuff happened with this administration, but it was still happening, right? And so... Yeah. Here's an organization that we want to put out there that can help empower people. We wanted to create community. Yeah, and I know that this year, um, because of COVID and the election, the decision was made not to do the conference. Um, but will you be back for 2021? In some capacity, we will be back for 2021. And actually, pre-COVID, we decided that we were going to um, take a break. Uh, they have a small child. I think he's three years old now. As you know, we have six-year-old twins. All of us have full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. And so we thought we would really work really hard the last couple of years. Um, having, you know, 200 women show up the first year, we were like, where'd she wow. come from? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then to be able to repeat that the second year, we're like, holy crap. But think about the time that it takes, the fundraising, the sponsorship, you know, getting the logistics people to buy out, the logistics, nightmare. exactly. Hotel bookings and Exactly, all bringing yes. some people. We, we, we brought a couple in from uh, Massachusetts or Rhode Island, you know, last year. And so we said, let's take a break. And by the way, let's focus on the election year. Yeah. We need to. And then COVID happened. And we're like, holy crap, what if we were still planning for all this? And then, because we start planning like, say, in January, and then COVID happened. So we will be back in some capacity in 2021. I think that depends on the conditions of, you know, the spikes in this, this state um, and, you know, what we Things think like we can vaccines do. Vaccines and of Vaccines course. and all this stuff. But hey, you know, virtual is always, a, is always a, an option. And so if we have to go virtual, we will. But we definitely will be back in 2021. It still involves planning, <laughs> doing <virtual> Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes it, does. It, is. it does, it does. Now we don't have to think about seats and all that stuff, but it's still lots of planning. And I've attended a couple of virtual galas that were normally in person. And there's still just as many blips and glitches that you get virtually, you know, as you do in person. Maybe even more because we're still navigating this whole virtual world. Sure. Absolutely. And in addition to Charles, okay, so in addition to working for Charles Schwab, 
and being a co-founder of Let's Talk, you and your wife started a consulting company called The Changist. Mm-hmm. What was the motivation behind starting it? And what do you all do? Yeah. And I'll be honest, I come from the academic world. I never know what consultants do. <laughs> I always hear it's one of those words you hear on TV, <laughs> like, oh, I'm a consultant. And I go, I don't, think anyone knows I don't know what that means. I teach government. I, I'm in a classroom. Right. I don't know what that means. What's a consultant do? What do you all do? So consultants do lots of things. And so, in fact, we are, we kind of reject the word consultant, but it's the word that you sort of have to use now because people kind of understand it. Mm-hmm. We're more advisors, but what we do, so let me back up to why we started it. So Cherilyn has a long legal history. She worked in legal departments, law firms. She was a paralegal for many years. Uh, when she was working for another financial company, she was in the, the, the legal PMO, so leading lots of legal initiatives from a project management perspective. So lots of legal experience there. My business and technology background, I've had that in leadership for the last 20-something years. And what some, one thing we would always talk about is a couple of things. Um, why do law firms do law really, really well, but business they don't do? They don't really, they're not taught to manage people. They're not taught to understand business processes. So you have a group of lawyers or even a sole practitioner who's doing really well at um, understanding the law and driving their cases. But from a business perspective, they're not doing that. They're not Files are a mess, right? Files are a mess. Uh, they don't know which technology they need to use. Uh, their data is all, all, all over the place. They're losing money and they don't know that they're losing money. They have a paralegal who's supposed to be a paralegal, but she's also, or he's doing billing and trying to be a paralegal. But that's, you know, there weren't two or three hats. So they, there was always that gap that we would always talk about, why are they not putting sound business processes into their legal departments? So we bring those two together. We bring her legal experience and we bring my business and technology experience and we bring those two worlds together for law firms. We primarily support law firms. And what we do is we go in and we talk to them about their processes. We interview every employee in the organization, including the partners and the staff and the associates. And we do what's called an environmental scan. And we scan their entire environment, ask 20, 30 questions, and we crunch all that data and we come back with a set of recommendations and we say something like you know you're losing two hundred thousand dollars a year did you know that do you know that you haven't got paid by client x in six months but you're still providing them services did you know that your billing process is taking 100 plus clicks and if you actually just implement technology that would go down to five clicks so Mm -hmm. that's the kind of information we give them and um, when they decide to go with us we implement that stuff and so we've um, been in business officially since, I guess, February or March. And we have onboarded several law firms and one big global company, and we're supporting their legal department. Um, and one big thing about the changes is why we're called this is that organizations, whether legal or not, say they want to change, but they usually don't know how to change. Mm. So they say they want to mm-hmm. change, but they don't know how to change, or they change just for the sake of change, or they'll change and then it's all unraveled in the next year or so because they don't know how to sustain the change. So a big piece of our business is not only showing you how to change and helping you sustain that change. Wow, that wow. seems like a lot of work. And you guys are fully employed? <laughs> well, she runs it, she runs changes. So she, she left okay. corporate America. So she left corporate America. She worked for another financial firm, competitor, I'll say. 
and um, she decided to to leave, and so she runs it. Yeah, there was there was no way that we could do all that. <laughs> There's just no way. I was like, wait a second. Whoa. Exactly. Yeah. No. So she's running that um, full time, and then um, when I can, I step in and help. But it, it definitely is a lot of work, but it's been uh, quite fulfilling. And the law firms that we were talking to have been uh, quite pleased with it. Awesome. That's amazing. And you can you can think about that. I see the need because. For people that go to law school, you're trained in the law. You're not trained in the business of exactly. being a lawyer. You're trained in the technicalities of what the law is, not how to run a business. So I can see where you would be needed because there's mm -hmm. often that disconnect. Exactly. There's often a disconnect. And we also, the other thing we do is we help them recruit. So we recruit talent for them too. Uh, one of the big issues that our clients are having is how do they keep millennials in seat? Millennials think a lot differently than uh, the previous generations, and um, law firms tend to be really uh, sort of structured and hierarchical and uh, very much kind of rigid, and millennials really are not, they're not jiving with that. So we're helping them not only recruit millennials, but also how do you navigate their world now and keep them in seat? You don't want to pay so much money to get someone in, 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 a, in a seat, right, to recruit them only for them to leave two, three months later. So we're helping them navigate those worlds too. Yeah, make law it's, firms less stuffy. <laughs> yes, that's what they want. They, they want it less stuffy and we have to bring our um, other generation of clients along, uh, but <laughs> we really have no choice. Millennials are the largest, I think, um, I think I read that they're the largest um, demographic to enter the workforce since the baby boomers. So we have to figure, I'm not, I'm not a millennial, <laughs> so, Gen X. so we have, <laughs> Gen X. Gen X. I'm Generation X. <laughs> Me too. So, <laughs> we have to figure out how to navigate uh, their world, and I think it's worth listening. They're worth listening to, definitely. Um, I think. Well, the flip side is that: is there any discussion about maybe millennials need to adjust expectations about what work is? And I want. And I, I often encounter that in the classroom: yeah. is that there's this disconnect between what work means or what work is sometimes. Yeah, I, I think they do. I definitely think they do. And, and, you know, from a law firm perspective, we've helped them understand that this is the way that law firms operate. But on the other side, though, you do have some millennials that say, I can just go drive Uber. I know I have, you know, law, law, uh, law school bills and things like that, but I can just go do something else. So it can just vary different than the other generation. Like we would just, we would, Generation X and Boomers, we would stay there and we'd figure it out and we learn. You have a lot of millennials and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know. No, but there's data to back up a lot there's of this. There's data to back it up, right? And millennials gotta, are more willing to leave their jobs where Gen X, Baby Boomer, exactly, we're going to yeah. stay and stick it out. We're going to stay and stick it out. Get that yeah, 401k yeah. and it's not perfect, but I don't know what else is out there. So Exactly, yeah. Gonna, you yeah. Know. And yeah, and I, I tend to want, I tend to not want to put them in a box, but yes, there's a lot of research and they will leave. They'll say, I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go be a barista. I'll go drive Uber. I'll do whatever to have this sort of freedom. So I think there is a point of here is what work is, but then there's the other side of understanding sort of what makes them tick. And I think you can make them stay in seat by um, ensuring that their voices are heard. We hear a lot of that. They want to, they want to make sure their voices are heard. They, they thrive on technology. And a lot of these law firms, they don't even do technology. So I think kind of creating the environment for them so we can have more sustainable, you know, millennial talent in the future. Yeah. As an older millennial. As a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> and then you were quiet. I'm like, I bet India is a millennial. <laughs> uh, 
Um, no, what I was going to say is you are correct. I actually um, do a, a little a talk around why you need to use pronouns in your different uh, work environments. Mm -hmm. And one of the data that I pulled from GLAAD is the future of our workforce. Um, the percentage of people who actually will identify as LGBTQ by age group would be 20%. You're freezing up. Oh, how about now? No, you're there. You're there. It's you're back. Better, better. Yeah, you froze up for a second. Um, no, what I was going to say is I, I teach this uh, or I, I give this talk to different organizations on why you need to use pronouns in your workspace. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the data that I pulled from GLAAD is that the future of our workforce in today's world, the percentage of people who identify as LGBTQ by age group, um, anyone between 18 and 34 is 20%. But by 2025, 75% of the workforce is millennials. Yep. Oh, wow. So um, when you put those kind of numbers together, if your company or organization doesn't take the time to really understand the millennials, and we're so intensely wanting to be entrepreneurs and make our own way in life, mm -hmm. if you don't provide that in a traditional workplace, we will just leave because <laughs> we feel like we can. And the internet has really given us the opportunity to just kind of do what we want and sell something online if we really wanted to, especially now during the pandemic. So really what I'm saying is I agree. <laughs> yeah, I'm a zenial. I'm right on the cusp. Like I'm right there in the middle. Like I'm 1981 where depending on who you talk to, I'm a Gen X or a millennial and I claim Gen X. But you can see that even students today are, my students are now Generation Z. Yeah. So they're even after millennials. Which is wild, which is wild. Yeah. Is. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm real Gen X. Gen X. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 80, I'm not 80 anything. Um, but but um, I'm open-minded enough to understand that you you have to, we have to learn how to how to navigate your, your world. I mean, it's, it just, it makes sense. And with that, you know, that statistic by 2025, that proves the point. Absolutely. Yeah, it's insane. And um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding on who the current workforce is and what the current workforce is coming in and what they thrive on and understanding who your audience is. That's even something like when I talk to my mom about her own business, mm -hmm. she's like the other day, she asked me, well, why would I want to track that? And I'm like, well, because then you can see who's <laughs> buying different things. It was something very minimal, but I think that providing that kind of information and or training for organizations can be life-changing. So the fact that you named exactly. your organization the changes makes total sense. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. Okay, so, um, Andy, do you want to ask this question? I just added on there because <laughs> I was just thinking about this while we were talking. I added a question. Yeah. Um, oh, great question. In terms of being a lesbian in corporate America, have you encountered any struggles or problems um, that we don't think about on a day-to-day -day basis? Yes, but I never know if it's because I'm a lesbian, because I'm a woman, or because I'm Black. Yes, mm. that intersectionality. Yes, oh, I, which one of them? Yes. Which one of them, right? So that, that compounding effect of intersectionality because of you, you check all of these boxes. So what I will say is as a lesbian um, in, you know, Black lesbian in corporate America, that I have to approach things very differently. 
And well, let me back up. I used to approach things very differently. I have since changed that because it's been suffocating for me. Mm -hmm. And so we're sort of really taught that we have to, we can't be as bold as the men. We have to hold back a little bit. It almost becomes an act, right? And that's not who I am, but I have experienced challenges where, you know, someone believes that they can talk down to me. Someone thinks I walk in a conference room and they don't think that I'm uh, a director, I'm, I'm some other uh, position, you know, I must be someone else, right? That's uh, that not part of the leadership team. I've experienced things like that and I just, you know, correct people. But, you know, I've started to be uh, bolder about my ideas and really, really bold about I'm a black woman in corporate America and I'm a lesbian and I'm going to ensure that people who look like me and love like me are that feel safe and are accepted here in this organization. And so I had that recently, um, I went to our CEO of, of Schwab and said that, I don't know if you've seen everything that's in the news lately, but I have to always ask myself, am I next? Mm -hmm. Am I next? Is my family next? Are my boys next? Is my brother next? And I don't think that you as a Caucasian man probably have those same thoughts. But what I want you to do is and reinforce that Schwab is a safe place. It's always felt safe to me when I'm inside these doors. Yes, we have some um, growth to do from a diversity perspective, but can you please reinforce? Uh, when the judge, the George Floyd thing happened, I went back to him and I said, you know, he sent out a very great email about it. I said, I'm glad that you are recognizing an issue here, but now our board needs to change. Our leadership needs to change. I hope that you add more African-American board members. I hope that our leadership mix in terms of black leaders changes. So, you know, what it's, yes, I've had challenges along the way, but I haven't really focused a lot of the challenges other than just ensuring that anyone who looks like me or who's different feels that they are a part of the whole and that they're not an other. And I tend to go to leadership to do that. I think that's where you're going to, you know, actually get the, where change that's is going to happen. I'll go straight. I just, uh, he has a very open door policy and never should have told me that, but I'm just going to send you an email. <laughs> so I go, I go straight to him. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I feel like we, we might have to do a whole episode on intersectionality because um, it, it comes up a lot in our episodes, especially with the people who we interview. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's also a big shift in how people are approaching things, um, not only the based on how you look like, but for me, I look very white, but I'm not. So I feel like I'm always mm -hmm. code switching and how do I um, you know, create a safe environment, not only for myself, but for other people who may not look the part, but they're not, yes. they're not white at the core or they are white at the core, but they don't look at, you know, there's all these different levels that we have to yeah. Exactly. It's so important. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a that's a whole episode. And yeah. you know, the, the question that you asked the listener, Aubrey, is is still a good one because even though I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go through my 20 plus career, 20 year career, 20 plus year career, um, but I'm sure there were issues that I had along the way. And again, I just never knew what they were. You know, I think the only one that can, that is very specific is that I worked for a company um, when I was a consultant. <laughs> some years ago at a company here in Dallas. <laughs> and um, the president of the company who I worked very closely with um, was afraid that I was going to tell clients that I was gay. And so he was sort of kind of minimizing the, 
the my exposure mm. to specific clientele because Keith, I think you're really great. You're awesome. You're one of our best employees, but I'm afraid that you're going to tell people that you're gay. And I'm like, what does that mean? Now, what does that have to do with anything? Exactly. Now I was in my 20s and I would have had a very different answer today if someone said that to me. So, yeah. but I'm sure I've encountered more challenges again. I just don't know which one it is because a lot of times it's because you're a woman, it's because you're black, it's because you're gay. Um, but there's a whole um, navigation of the corporate America environment that black women have to do. And I've actually started writing about it. And that's a that's another, you know, subject that you may want to explore. Oh yeah. If you have oh, it heard is. of the blue haired recruiter on LinkedIn, please go follow her. She's okay. incredible. Highly recommend. Um, and she talks yeah. about a lot of what you're mentioning and saying. Yeah. And this is something that we're now addressing and I don't know how to change corporate America. I've <laughs> created a life where I would never be in it. So I don't fully it understand. Needs, it, needs, it needs to change drastically. And I'm trying to change to, education. I'm, not, you know, I'm trying to change education higher education because no. we have our own problems. We have the we need, same we problems. We have the same problems, but with, you know, different financing. Right, right, exactly. So, but. No, we, we, need you, we need you in education to change that. But um, but yeah, I, I wrote about it. And I actually submitted it, uh, submitted it for my talk. I was going to talk at the a Lesbian to Tech um, uh, conference, which uh, I, I don't, I think, oh yeah, we talked about that, didn't you? I so love I was going to talk about it, um, but then they changed the subject matter. They wanted more tech conversations and I ended up being an MC, but anyway, so I, I wrote extensively about it, but it's certainly a world that is very different and that you have to navigate it a certain way. And I don't, that, that tool book, that playbook is not out there for anybody. No. Yeah. I just say, I just say what I want now. That's, that's, that's basically good though. <laughs> the best way to be. Uh, okay, so shifting gears a little bit and, you know, how did you and Cherilyn meet? And how are your boys doing these days? Because they're six. And they're so they're six, kindergarten, yeah. first, they're first grade, grade, first grade. I never remember. Mm-hmm. I, I always, I always forget. So how are they doing? How'd you guys meet? Y'all meet. So no, we, how'd y'all meet? We met, this is, this sounds like a movie. We met at Sue Ellen's. So yeah. do you know yes. Sue Ellen? Yes. It, yeah. We just interviewed yes. hey, it is, uh, but, Yeah, we just did you. Okay. Yes, we just interviewed Kathy. So yeah. So okay, yeah, I've met Kathy several times. So what's interesting is that um I decided to go to Sue Ellen's on a Wednesday night, which is so unlike me, after work on a Wednesday night to have a drink, uh, to meet a friend for a drink. And Sherilyn happened to be there too, um, with um with a friend having having a drink. And it was interesting because I was at the bar and she hates uh, the store. Which I think maybe she loves the store. She walks in. Um, and the first thing I said is, look at this straight girl walking into the club. Uh, that's what I said. Um, and so she uh, goes around the, that's all I said. And she goes around the, the, the bar and talks talk to her friend and I'm talking to my friend. And at some point in the conversation, I said the word MySpace, because that's when MySpace is big. Ah, uh, yes. And, um, back in the day and she heard me say MySpace and she got really excited and she runs over to my side of the bar and we all just start talking and we I know we all start talking we went to the roundup together and we became friends we're eight years apart so I never thought it was any anything possible um, I'm eight years older than her and so we became friends and started kind of hanging out um, and we both never thought it was a possibility one the age difference two at that time this is a whole nother episode we did not date black women what she really? Did not date, she she 
she specifically did not date black women. I specifically did not date black women. Had never dated a black woman. Until oh, but I you're my, both my black. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about that. <laughs> I want to mention that because like you're just an audio podcast. Okay. It's like, I don't want to clarify that. Okay. <laughs> that is, is, is sometimes uh, pretty prominent in our community. And it is what I really under, had to have a reckoning about is that that's self-hate. I was never taught that I was beautiful. I was never taught that other black women were beautiful. I went to a predominantly white school where my features were made fun of. I was not lifted up when I was younger to say that, yeah, Stacey, you're kind of tomboyish and that's cool, but you're still beautiful. Um, both Cheryl and I were made fun of by the other black kids because we didn't mm. talk black, whatever the hell that means. Or we I don't know. Ah, I guess, it's just I so guess, ridiculous. I got so that there's for a whole years. bunch of things. And so you end up with this... Um, internalized self-hate you don't even know it is and you see people who look like you that you don't even understand or know that they're attractive attractive hmm. because there's this whole self in each other and we we're just friends and one night we just click and i never dated a black woman she had the first black woman i dated her first for her and we we got married <laughs> <laughs> and um we were able to find the beauty in each other and the beauty in ourselves through that and that was a huge piece for us because I had never found the beauty in myself as a black woman. Not that I thought that I was ugly then. But just appreciating being a black, being a black woman. woman. Appreciating yes. being a black woman um, and uh, appreciating loving another black woman and, and understanding our history and all that is none of that. And, and that happened through our, um, you know, through our, our, our partnership and we've been together a total of four, married 13 years, together 14 years. Wait, yeah. to interview both of you together. <laughs> oh boy, it's going yes. to be interesting. Let me tell you, I'm more reserved and and even though she's an introvert, we sure ambivert. Is that what it's called? But yes. she's um, yeah. she she's way more. Um, out there though than, than I am but yeah I mean it's been 14 years and um we have two beautiful six-year-old boys Duke and London and which are um, wonderful names oh, yeah yeah I have so a I have cute. a thing with I have a thing with British so uh, culture um I think it's called an Anglophile yes like we're Francophiles we love French culture my daughter has See? a French name and we're learning French there together so yeah I totally get that <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we, we adopted our boys and it's been uh, a great journey and they are uh, beautiful and rocking our world at the same time. Uh, I love that, Stacey. Um, so for our last question, uh, we yeah. ask this to all of our guests. What does mm -hmm. being queer in the South mean to you and why do you think it's important for us to talk about it? Being queer in the South. Yeah. You know, I would have said before that it means being closeted and being careful of your surroundings. Hmm. Now I feel that it's more of a, it's a celebration because we live in this red state. We live in this, you know, I'm my entire neighborhood is, is a sea of, of Trump and signs and a sea of, of, of red. And rather than being afraid now, and being like, oh, we're living in the South and you know, they're, they're really red. I'm more celebratory about it. I'm more myself, I'm more me. We have a rainbow flag out in this, this suburban, you know, um, city that we live in. There's this rainbow flag right in the middle. Like we're staking our claim. So I feel like it's about staking our claim. It's about not 
making people think that, you know, um, the South is all red and the South is only straight and the South is only being, you know, heterosexual and, you know, what a normal, you know, family is, right? Or whatever they say normal is. Um, and so um, I, I, I think it's important that we, we stand in our truth, especially those of us that aren't in these um, cities that are not as progressive. It's, it's the only way that we're going to create change. And I think that we have to go through it fearlessly, which is not always easy. It's not always easy, but we have to be fearlessly, fearless, especially in this particular environment, in this political environment. It's time for us to um, really step away from the fear and really move into the future because we are the future. I truly believe that. There's all these policies and legislations that are being, you know, rallied against uh, LGBTQ people. I don't care. Keep no. doing it. We're not going anywhere. Yeah. We are absolutely not going anywhere, especially. You can't legislate South. us out of existence. You absolutely it doesn't work can't. That way. It no. doesn't work that way. Mm -mm. We'll keep fighting your laws, but we are not going anywhere. We're going to be loud. And we're going to be here. We're going to be proud. So I hope that I'm, I hope that answered your question. I may have gone off track there a little bit because I get passionate about it, but. No. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um. We're not going anywhere. Yeah. I, it, we're, that's the thing. I think it's making us louder. And, and I can admit, and I know we have a few minutes left. I think we were pretty comfortable. At least I can speak for myself. I was pretty comfortable when, say, Obama was in office. I was really comfortable. And I think that comfortable, that comfortable feeling, um, it blinded me a little bit about what the work that was still left to do. And so then enter this administration, this underbelly of America just showing itself. It was always there. I was always walking amongst homophobes and racists and misogynists. They were always there. Now they've been empowered, right, to, to you know, be more loud and proud and, and think that they can uh, make us disappear. I think the irony of it is that they're the ones who are actually afraid. It's not us. Exactly. Right. We're not trying to shut people out. We're not trying to legislate people out of existence. That's only that's only it's fear. What are you afraid of? Just allow us to exist. But at any rate, we're we're not going anywhere. And if anything, it's it's going to make us more loud and more proud. We're not going anywhere. It doesn't scare me. And I know it doesn't scare you all. And I'm so glad that you know you you had me on. This is fun. Can we do this every week or what's the schedule now? Right. You can have my position. There you go. <laughs> It is now Stacey and India show. I will just be the background producer. No, no, no. We need, we need three people. Three no, people. no, no. We can do three. I'm not. You can take mine. You can have my spot. We no, can no, rotate. No. Let's rotate. Let's, let's rotate, Aubrey. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, Stacey, so, thank you so much for being on the this show. This has been amazing. Go ahead. Thank you. This has been fun. Yeah, this has been a, a real treat. I'm so glad we got to talk to you. Thank you so much. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and let me know what you're talking about for 2021 and we'll get Sherilyn on. Yay! To find out more about Stacey Stevenson, you can go to their website, www.stacystevenson.com. You can also find out more about Sherilyn's company, The Changes, at www.changest.com. And if you want to learn more about Les Talk Dallas, you can go to their website, www.lestalkdallas.com. That's Les as an L-E-Z. Until next time. You can find more information about this episode and the show at our website, southernqueries.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Southern Queries. Queries is with two E's. 
Until next time, thanks for listening. Some credits. Production. Your hosts, India and Aubrey. Audio mixing by Allison Holly. Story research, Aubrey Calvin. Editing, India Bastia. This is Southern Queries.